Welcome to the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast, which aims to advance gospel-centered youth ministry by equipping and empowering youth ministers and parents to faithfully disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ. The Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast is part of the Rooted Family of Podcasts, which also includes the Rooted Parent Podcast, Ask Alice, and Thanos to Theos. To learn more about Rooted, visit us at www.rootedministry.com. I'm your host, Davis Lacey. It is Monday afternoon at the Gospel Coalition's 2021 conference here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, When people get together and meet and talk about Jesus, it's always exciting. When you're doing that, hopefully on the tail end of a global pandemic where this kind of space has been hard to come by, uh, the energy is palpable. And you can hear that in the background of our recording. Um, But nowhere is the excitement more tangible uh, than right here at the Rooted Youth Ministry booth where we're recording this episode of the Rooted Youth Ministry podcast with Dr. Brian Chappell. Uh, brother, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Rooted Youth Ministry podcast. Thank you, Davis. And I think, what, am I feeling electricity or what? We're just feeling, <laughs> we're just glad to be it's back weird. with people, it's, aren't it's we? the excitement of yeah. being here in the flesh, having this conversation. How's, how's your conference been? You haven't been here for long. Were your travels in good? Are you looking forward to a good time here? Uh, I am looking forward to a good time here, and I've not been here long, as you said, so I, I uh, got here about mid-morning, and what are we at? We're mid-afternoon now, so I've, I've uh, done a couple of interviews and, and uh, sat in on a couple of sessions, so that's, that's my uh, early exposure to uh, what's happening at the Gospel Coalition. Have you played a game of cornhole yet? I have not. Well, that will change as soon as we're done recording this episode. Now, you don't know. I might be good. Uh, you, know? you, you, I mean, so fellow Midwesterner Colin Hansen currently holds uh, the lead. Perfect score would be 24, and he's at 22 right now. Oh, so boy. He, he, set, he set the standard pretty high. There's a bar. There's a high bar. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, y'all, Dr. Brian Chapel leads the administrative committee of the Presbyterian Church in America and is also pastor emeritus of the historic Grace Presbyterian Church and president emeritus of Covenant Theological Seminary. His preaching and teaching are broadcast in many nations through Unlimited Grace Media and are also available at www.unlimitedgrace.com. He is the author of many books, including the book we'll be talking about today, Christ-Centered Preaching. He and his wife, Kathy, have four adult children and a growing number of grandchildren. I'm still in the children phase, but I hear the grandchildren are are pretty great. My oldest son is, even as we speak, uh, traveling to Ohio, we think, to... Uh, claim the latest adopted child, even even right now, even today. Congratulations. So that, that would be wonderful. Oh, congratulations. Thank That's you. That's awesome. Well, like I said, brother, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to talk about Christ-Centered Preaching, uh, a book that has had a profound impact on so many of us here at Rooted. And the subtitle to your book is Redeeming the Expository Sermon. You know, one of our core values, one of our pillars here at Rooted is theological depth through expository biblical teaching. And so when we talk about redeeming the expository sermon, that's really important for us to get right and to understand. Help us explain why you gave the book the subtitle, What in Your Mind Typically Needs to be Redeemed About the Expository Sermon? Well, it's a great question and probably not a mystery to you. The title was An Intentional Pun 
So if you're redeeming expository preaching, that meaning can just mean you're reclaiming the importance of expository preaching. And for that reason, uh, I wanted to tell people, you know, there's a way of doing this without just boring people, which is the biggest <laughs> knock on expository preaching, sure. that expounding a, a passage is basically a data dump. You know, you just kind of regurgitate a commentary that you read and hope people will stay awake while you're going through it. And I wanted to say, you know, that's, that's not the best definition of expository preaching. Uh, it's always important to say, listen, if you don't know the significance of a passage, you don't really know what it means. And so if all I've done is the data dump, and you don't really know why that's important for your life or what difference it makes, I probably really have not explained the passage, which okay. is the goal of expository preaching. So one reason to talk about redeeming the expository sermon is that in some measure it had fallen on hard times. And we would say topical preaching certainly had ascendancy, even what's called narrative preaching, that you tell stories in, in such a way to keep people engaged with kind of a moral at the end. And the idea of explaining a biblical text was just presumed to be uh, for scholars and for people who were just kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, Bible fanatics rather than ordinary people, that ordinary people could not take a heavy dose of Bible. And I had to say, you know, if you misdefine what expository preaching is, of course nobody wants to listen to that. And of course it's dull and boring and uninteresting. But a data dump is not what expository preaching is. Expository preaching is saying, let me tell you what this word says. Let me tell you what it means. Let me demonstrate that from somebody's life. And then let's say how it applies to your life, which is not a data dump. It's actually engaging with people pastorally to say, what are you struggling with? And these people in the Bible, what were they struggling with? It's like that. And so we're actually helping. So one reason to redeem the expository sermon was just to talk about, it's not just a commentary regurgitation that we have to talk about when we're doing preaching and being faithful to God's word. Now, in candor, that wasn't my primary reason for, <laughs> for labeling things, redeeming the expository sermon. What I wanted to do is to say, Please, folks, don't do what I did for the first five years of my ministry, in which I defined an expository sermon as getting people to do what they don't want to do. Uh. That you just, you just hound them with enough information and make them feel bad enough and guilty enough that they'll do what the Bible says they should do. So if your definition of preaching, and particularly expository preaching, is getting people to do what they don't want to do, um, that is a horrible job. And it won't just crush your people, it will crush you. And, uh, and, and that's my story. And, and Davis, you know, if you just want to hear a little bit of that, you want to hear kind of what took me down that path? Let's hear it, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I had a great privilege uh, when I graduated from seminary. And uh, the privilege was I was asked to take the oldest and the largest church in our region of people of our denomination. And I thought, man, look at me, aren't I something? young guy, large church, historic church, man, I am something. Mm. And I had no idea how tough it was going to be. And it, it wasn't just that I was too young for the position. It was what began to happen in that church. So I, I was in a church that was in a primarily uh, farming and mining community. And um, so shortly after I arrived, the Environmental Protection Agency of the United States changed the standards for coal that could be used in the United States. 
And that meant that high sulfur, soft coal mined from our region could no longer be marketed in the United States. Oh, no. And within, oh, months of my arrival, there were quite literally thousands and thousands of people out of work oh. in our area with government safety net. But you can just imagine if, if you've been mining for generations, if you've got good income, you're expecting your children to hang around, to be miners, and, and it was good work. Yeah. And suddenly the children of the community vanish, jobs yes. vanish, oh. daily work vanishes. And, and if, if jobs and income plummet, there are human dynamics that begin to rise very rapidly inside people's homes. Alcohol, promiscuity, abuse, divorce, and everywhere, 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 depression. Now, I thought I knew what to do. Um, I would stand in the pulpit every Sunday and I would say to people struggling with alcohol or abuse or adultery or depression, I would stand up and I'd say, stop it. Now, just stop it. It says right here in the Bible, don't be drunk. It says right here in the Bible, you shall not hit your spouse. It says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. It says here that, that um, you're supposed to be faithful and not abusive. And if you're depressed, well, rejoice in the Lord. It says right here, I'll say it again, rejoice. Uh. I said stop it so often I cannot stand me anymore. And the consequence of that was I wasn't even out of my 20s. And I began to look for another profession. I said to my wife, I didn't go to seminary to learn to hurt people. I stand in the pulpit every Sunday and I hurt people. And I can't do this anymore. And what the Lord did for me um, was he brought into my life the writings of a man named Sidney Gradanus, still alive, still yes. teaching. Yes. And, and he, he just did a very slow track through the Bible, looking at the heroes of the Bible. And what a mess most of them were. And he came up with one very simple conclusion. There's only one hero, oh. and everybody else needs him. And as obvious as that is to me now, it was revolutionary then. Because I recognized what Scripture was saying is, if God could use people as messed up as those in the Bible, maybe he's still got a plan for you. Maybe there's still hope for you, even if you've messed up. And I looked at people who were struggling with abuse and adultery and alcoholism and depression, and I could say to them, God's not done with you. There's hope for you. And, and it wasn't just I began to see hope going back into their eyes. There was somebody else rescued in that process, and it was me. I, I was not out of my 20s, and I believed I was a failure, and I needed to leave the ministry. And so much of what I've written and done ever since has tried to say to people, folks, don't do what I did. The Bible is this beautiful unfolding of the grace of God in all of Scripture that culminates in Christ to give people hope. And, and when you do that, they're actually stronger than when you beat on them. They're actually, when they've got hope, they've got strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And, and that, that was what I wanted to talk about, redeeming the expository sermon. Yes. I want you to see the whole Bible as an unfolding of the grace of God that culminates in Christ because when people have hope, they have strength. And the very thing you were trying to accomplish with that expository sermon to straighten people up, you got a lot better chance of. You've got the divine will to accomplish when you're actually speaking of the grace of God. Apart from Christ, they can do nothing. But in Christ, all things are possible. Yes.
man, I feel like something spiritual just happened as I got to hear your story a little bit more. The, the writings that I've received from you and so many of our listeners have received from you have been a gift that we have used and have been blessed by and our listeners have been blessed by. But seeing and hearing the background behind it, brother, thank you for your transparency and vulnerability. Well, Davis, Glory it's, be to it's the cause of my life yes. because the Lord rescued me. And I just, I want others to know the goodness of that. Amen. Amen. Tell me a little bit about um, sort of some of the taxonomy or, or terminology that you put on identifying the universal human conditions that the Bible addresses and, and thereby points us to Jesus, right? You call that the fallen condition focus of your book or the FCS, is FCF, is that correct? That's right, fallen condition. And it's, so controversy when I was in seminary, it, it, it was this, it was, uh, you know, how do you engage people with script? Same thing, if you do expository preaching, how do you keep people from just nodding off? <laughs> and so I went into the pastorate for a while and then I was asked to come back and, and teach people. And when I was in seminary, the, the, the language was, uh, you need to preach to needs, not just to minds. You know, identify people's needs and preach to that. Well, after I'd been in the pulpit for a while, something had happened. And uh, there'd been a huge controversy that I was unaware of on preaching to needs. And it was this controversy, you know, that's anthropocentric. Uh-huh. That's putting men first, not God first. You shouldn't preach to needs. And so I came back to seminary and I said to the guys, same thing I'd been taught, what guys preach to needs. And they were about ready to take me out of there and tar and feather me. I was like, what, what did I do wrong? You know, what's, why are you so mad at me? And they said, because that's man-centered preaching, not God-centered preaching. And I said, oh, goodness, how do I say, all right, preach what they don't need. Preach what they don't need. (laughs) Well, that's not the answer. What is the answer? Well, it's to recognize the Bible has a structure. And the structure was God made everything good. Then there was a fall. Everything went bad. Now, there's a consummation at the end of all things where everything is made perfect. That's even better than good. But in the meantime, what is God doing? We're going from everything went bad to everything's made. What happens in the meantime? God is redeeming a fallen world and fallen creatures. That's the redeeming. But what's he redeeming? People who are fallen, situations that are fallen, the world that has fallen. And so you say, when you begin to look at the Bible, you're saying, what is the context in which every passage is written, except Genesis 1 and 2, (laughs) every passage is written in the context of a fallen world and fallen creatures. And God didn't just say, well, you know, here's some stuff you should know. You know, it just, some stuff that, you know, it, it catalog this away, you should know. No, the Holy Spirit is saying, there's a reason for every passage. And we say, well, what's the reason? Well, because people, are fallen and the scriptures are addressing that. They are redemptive in their focus. They're not just saying this is for information. They're saying this is for help. God has written this in such a way that you can be ministered to, helped, redeemed. And by the way, it's not your doing because the message from the beginning is you are not your redeemer. You're fallen. And so the fallen condition focus is looking at every text and saying, all right, what's, what's wrong? Why'd the Holy Spirit put this here? Not, not what's it about, that's the topic. Why is it here? What's the fallen condition? And that moves us from being encyclopedia distributors, here's more information for you, to being pastors. Here's the thing that you're struggling with. And look at those people, they're struggling with the same thing. How did God help them? Here's how I can help you. And you take truth to struggle, instead of just trying to give people commentary data dumps. Yeah. So flesh this out a little bit more because, um, you know, we talk about preaching Christ 
some passages are explicitly about Christ, about Jesus, and it's, it's simple and straightforward somewhat, at least, to be able to preach Christ from those passages. And yet, other passages, I think of Genesis 38, the story of Tamar, I think about, um, I mean, even for that matter, the passage I preached for our church yesterday from 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the distribution of various sorts of gifts in the body. And these maybe are a little bit more difficult to say, how is this good news? Can you help us, maybe in a practical example, help us understand how to identify a text's fallen condition focus and how we might bring that to bear for not just the content of a text, but the intent of a text, as, as we would explain that to our people? It's a great question. And I think you, in some ways you develop instincts to answer not just the what question, what does it say, but always why does it say it? You know, what's the reason that this is here? So let's just take an example. And by the way, if you're trying to make Jesus mentioned in every text, you're going to be in a big mess, right? <laughs> you're just going to go, well, do I need to take out a decoder ring or bring my magic wand? <laughs> sure. How do I get Jesus sure. out of... No, no. The goal is not to get every text to mention Jesus. That's not the point. You're, you're identifying how is the grace of God on display? How is God rescuing people? And the culmination of that message is Jesus. So we're going to be in a big mess if we try to make Jesus magically appear everywhere. But if we say, look, how is God fixing the problem that humans cannot fix? Tamar. Now, you, you mentioned Genesis. Sure. What a terrible example. You know, here's, here's a woman married to some rotten people, and, and she should get another husband from Judah, and he won't do it. And instead, he goes to her as if she's a prostitute and he begins to sleep with his own daughter-in-law and when she becomes pregnant of that union he wants to burn her and he says and she says by the way you're the dad mm. and he didn't know that mm. I mean there's hardly a more sordid story in the whole Bible sure and you say well how do you get, how do you get Jesus out of that well I, I don't <laughs> I don't get Jesus out of that what do I get out of that I get the line of Jesus out of that yes from from the very beginning of the promises that would come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose son was Joseph, whose brother, whose oldest brother was, not oldest, but older brother was Judah, was the promise, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will be the lion out of which the Messiah, because he's such a good guy. Mm. No, he's not a good guy. Mm. He's a terrible, and nothing makes that more clear than Tamar. You know, he takes advantage of her. He, 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 he impregnates her. He, he, he's, he tries to burn her. But God says, you know what? You are not your redeemer. And it's not your works that made you right before me. It's my mercy. And there's no better example of that than Judah, who became part of the line of Jesus. And, and what I'm learning is for people who are a mess, there is still mercy for people who are hopeless, there is still hope, and that's the message that's in there. Now, people look other places and say, well, wait, 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 okay, maybe, maybe you get it from there, because after all, I do get that Judah is in the line of Jesus, so that's how you got to Jesus. But Psalm 150, now, you know, what, what's Psalm 150 about? It says, praise the Lord. And then it says again, praise the Lord. And it says, well, praise him on the lyre and the harp and dance and organ and trumpet and uh, praise the Lord. And you see, there's nothing about Jesus there. There's no fallen condition there. It just says, praise the Lord for his mighty deeds. I said, well, well let me ask you a question. Um, if God says to you, praise the Lord, 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God for his might. What might be God's concern? Maybe people are not praising the Lord for his mighty deeds, Mm. which in the book of Psalms always refers to his redemptive acts, his saving Israel when they could not save them. Praise God for his salvation of people who cannot save themselves. That's good. And don't forget to do that. And he says it 10 times. So you say, what's the falling condition? Maybe we don't worship God the way we ought to. Maybe we don't remember his salvation deeds and we need to, or we will be hopeless. And and when you recognize that's from the fifth book of Psalms, which is the collection from which the people sang when they came back from captivity for their slave, for their awful sin. And God says, you know what? You can still worship me. And you worship me for my mighty deeds, not your mighty deeds. That what you have is God providing hope again to hopeless people. And it's that grace that culminates in Christ. So we learn to see it. I, I say, put, learn to put on your gospel glasses, right? <laughs> so what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about me? And if you see what's wrong and how God is fixing it, you're getting to see the grace that culminates in Christ. I want to ask you a question um, that is not just about the substance of our preaching, but also the mode or the mechanisms of our preaching. Your doctorate is in speech communication. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? Did I get that right? You did. Okay, perfect. Um, I always try to do my homework, and sometimes (laughs) stuff just falls through the cracks. No, you you did great. That's good. That's good. Perfect. Um, You know, in youth ministry, there is so much talk about attention spans getting shorter and about the need to use many different multi-sensory devices to communicate and whether that's video clips or whether that's playing a game in the middle of things you know what whatever it is but the complaint is uh, attention spans are getting shorter so you need to shorten things you need to mix it all up and and have a lot of different bags in the trick or a lot of different tricks in the bag Uh, what aspects in your opinion of this shorter attention span logic do you affirm what do you push back against, and how can we, as those who are seeking to communicate the gospel to young people, kind of take that wisdom and, and best put it into practice? Well, there's never an excuse for being boring, so let's start there. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, whether you're young or old, you don't have much of an attention span for what's boring. But just to assume that because you're younger, you have a shorter attention span, there's actually no good data that supports that. So if you say, What's, what's the average length of sermon in evangelical churches in the U.S. today? The, the answer is 37 minutes, average length, 37 minutes. But the younger the church, the higher the tolerance for length. So if you look at the younger pastors and 20-something congregations, you know, well, they tend to be longer. They might be 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. The older the congregation, the shorter the tolerance for the longer sermon. Now, there's all kinds of sociological factors for that. But it's also that if you're willing to say to people something that is touching their lives, if you're not just trying to do the data dump again, if you're not just doing theological essays and calling them sermons, then actually people have a pretty long attention span. Now, you use the, you know, what tricks do you pull out of your back? I'd much rather talk about, are you willing to touch people's hearts as well as their heads? Mm. Because if you're willing to touch their hearts as well as their heads, they stay engaged. Now, we all struggle. Everybody struggles. If, you, if you're just kind of, you know, how many documentaries do you watch versus how many movies do you watch? You know, yeah, well, you know, more movies than documentaries is my guess. Sure. But why do we watch the movie? Why do people binge watch movies? Because there's things that are, are touching them at many different levels. And that's just what good preaching does. It does not 
avoid the mind nor avoid the heart. It's willing to, to touch every aspect of the human concern. And, you know, if it's all head knowledge, then when we create, you know, if we say Dr. Spock is holy, well, that, no, not the, not the point. You know, it's not just all logic. On the other hand, if we're just all going to be comedians and entertainers, you know, nobody's going to buy that snake oil. You know, we may like the show, but we're, but we're not going to buy that. But if what we're doing is we're saying, listen, I want you not only to understand what I'm saying, I want you to know the significance of it. And I actually want you to feel it at a heart level so that we're being honest about what we're struggling with, honest about what other people are struggling with, and then tell them the significance of the texts that we are dealing with for helping them through their struggle. That really lengthens attention span. And that's not playing games. You know, that's not, let's do a video game. Again, just good research. <laughs> uh, a decade ago, what did we all try to do? You had to have a film clip to start the sermon. Yes. You, you, you had to have some sort of movie clip in order to keep people engaged. You had to have three movie clips, one for each point. It's not happening anymore. Why is it not happening anymore? Because we, we found the vacuousness of it, the emptiness of it. That if all you're doing is you're evaluating the goodness of the sermon by how good the video clip was, then next week the video clip may not be as good, or the next week, or the next week, or the next week. So you're training people to say, well, if I don't like the video clip, it's not a good sermon. And ultimately what happens is everybody recognizes the emptiness of that. So just as the overhead projector movement came and went in about 10 years, (laughs) the video clip movement has come and gone in about 10 years. The most impactful thing for any person over time, this century or 20 centuries ago, is trust in the person who's talking. If I trust you to understand me and to be honest with me about what the Word says and what you struggle with and what I struggle with, I will listen to you. And nothing nothing is more impactful than truth poured through personality that I trust. And uh, if that's in place, I can have a pretty long attention span. Wow. It speaks... You know, we're talking through theological depth and expository Bible preaching, which is one of our five pillars or core values at Rooted, but that it is linked inseparably, it sounds like, to another one of our five pillars, which is relational discipleship, that discipleship takes place in the context of vulnerable, authentic, uh, trust-building relationships. It has, and that's just being human. You know, that's not like some new communication technique. Sure. That's, that's just how human beings relate and how God speaks to us at a heart level. And, and that's the good thing. We don't need tricks. We don't need games. Um, I'm not saying they're all wrong. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know I, I think, did, did any kid ever learn by, you know, that Jesus, you know, uh, his blood makes you clean and they pour, you know, the iodine into the vinegar and then it turns clear. Look at that. You know, well, that's good for one time. <laughs> That's not. That's probably not a diet of the way you're going to teach young people. But I'm not saying it's always wrong. I am saying when you love people and they know you love them, they will listen to you. And they'll listen to you even tell them hard things if they know it comes from a heart of love speaking with the authority of the Word. Love it. Well, I'll ask you this question because you, you brought it up, and it seems like a good segue into this point, that a youth ministry that says our best energies are going to go into um, building 
gospel relationships and proclaiming the gospel from God's word. This is where our best energy is going to go. And then other places it may be, maybe there's a game that goes alongside of it or a special event that coordinates with that. But our best energy is going to go these places, right? The, the youth ministry that doesn't always have the bounce house or the pizza party or the great game, whatever it is. I love bounce houses. They're, they're great. <laughs> they're awesome. Um, and because of that, the youth ministry that doesn't have them every week will probably have a lower attendance than the youth ministry that does. Can you explain from your years of overseeing students and preaching and watching some of your students preach for for years and years and years faithfully, can you help us understand why this approach, this Christ-centered preaching approach, is worth it over the long haul, even if it may not seem like it to us who are discouraged in the moment? Listen, what most parents, preachers, youth leaders are most concerned about is good behavior. Because if they get good behavior, they think they are a success. And what we have to say is good behavior didn't ever get anybody into heaven. Mm. And so what we really have to be about is winning hearts to Christ. And how do you do that? You convince them that he loves those who don't deserve it. And you do that by loving people who don't deserve it. Now, you have to teach them what's a better way. You know, what, what the undeservedness, whatever, whatever was the mess that you're in or struggling with or whatever. I mean... I, I trust young people to know when something is empty and vain. I mean, good, they, they got better antenna than we old folk do, sure. right? So, sure. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no better person to have good antenna for just what is, is, is vain and hypocritical than a, young, than a teenager. Man. You know, their antenna are great for that. But their ten, antenna are also great for, say, do you genuinely care about me? Because if you genuinely care about me, I will listen to what you have to say. And if it's true, and if it speaks about God in a way that is not just ritualistic or religious or legalistic, if it really is talking about how someone loves me when I don't even love myself, that's what's coming across. I will listen to you. Dr. Chapel, thank you so much for spending these moments with us. Um, before, before I let you go, you know, we've talked this time about a book that has been released, yours, Christ-Centered Preaching. Let's talk just briefly about a book that will be released this fall. Uh, Rooted's forthcoming title called The Jesus I Wish I Knew in High School, speaking right to the hearts of teenagers, saying, man, as those who are a few steps down the path, this is what I wish I could go back in time and tell my high school self. Dr. Chapel, what's one thing that you wish you knew about Jesus when you were in high school? You know, I, I think I knew that he loved me despite my sin. I think that had been drilled enough into my head. But I think I believe that he loved me more when I did better. Mm. And I wish I knew that he loves me because I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ, not a righteousness of my own. And therefore, he will never love me more, and he will never love me less. That does not get me off the hook, because if I simply recognize how great is his love for me, then I will live in response to that love rather than to gain it. Because if I'm living to gain it, I can never measure up. I'll ultimately either sacrifice my faith to pride or to, to despair. There's only, only two options. God will love me when I do good. Either I, I recognize I can't do enough good or I pretend that I have. Pride or despair, the, if I recognize, no, he has loved me infinitely. He loves me as much as he loves Jesus because I'm covered in Jesus' righteousness. Then I begin to live in response to that love not to gain it, not to barter it, not to manipulate God, but because I love him. And I wish I knew that obedience came out of love rather than trying to keep the ogre in the sky off my back. Mm. Amen. It's good news 
for me today, even as it would have been great news for me to grasp more fully in high school. Thank you so much for your time today, brother. If folks want to learn more about you and your ministry, is the best place to point them Unlimited Grace, your your new site? That's it. Yeah, unlimitedgrace.com. Unlimitedgrace.com. Uh, I would commend that to you listeners. Dr. Chapel. a big thank you to joining us on this episode of the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast. And listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, if you found this podcast helpful and are encouraging, we'd appreciate your help in bringing this grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated content to others who might also benefit. Help us serve others by sharing this resource on social media, by leaving five-star feedback, or simply by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated resources, be sure to visit www.rootedministry.com. As always, special thanks to High Street Hymns for providing the music on this podcast. On behalf of all of us here at Rooted, my name is Davis Lacey, and this has been an episode of the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast.